This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. Please welcome to the stage, Joe McLeod. Thank you. Give us a minute while I set up. Um, and while I'm setting up, I'd like to introduce a few people who are going to come up on stage to, as part of the Upfront Global initiative that Lauren Curry started uh, probably a couple of years, years ago now. And uh, she's from the UK. And this uh, helps people who are interested in doing this sort of job where you stand here in front of you lot and uh, have to grapple with this. So this is, uh, let me get them right now. Alex, Ton, Bellen, and Tina. So they're going to see, see what it's like up here. First of all, you've got to do this type of stuff that's really boring, <laughs> clicking things in and stuff. I'll be here in a minute. But while I'm doing this, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my history of why, do you, why did you get into this, Joe? And why did you start thinking about this? I had a couple of experiences really early on, uh, like 2004. One of them was a wildfire, it was called. It was a voice recognition service on your mobile phone. And it would pick up messages and say, you know, handle voice calls. Do you remember when people used to leave answer phone messages? Anyone remember that? Well, somebody invented a voice recognition sort of avatar thing for that. It was rubbish. And uh, I thought it was going to be great. And I signed up. And I used to have this conversation with Wildfire, which would be like this. Hey, Wildfire, tell me who's wrong. And Wildfire would go, sorry, I don't understand you. And that's how it worked. It made me so angry. I was so angry about it. I, want, I wanted to throttle Wildfire's horrible avatar eyes, faded to black. And I didn't have a vocabulary at that point to think about what I really felt about it, what was my emotional, convic my emotional sort of feelings about that. So um, hopefully that should be working now. And so I, that was way back in 2004. I had done a couple of li a little projects around there. It was pretty shallow. Um, not that I do shallow work. I think everyone helps to do, feel like they're doing meaningful, deep work. But thinking back on it, it was pretty shallow. And so I then had a career that went through loads of telecoms company. I ended up, I was working at Us2. I was head of design at Us2 for a good few years, which was lots of fun. It's a great company. And uh, by left there, I was very intrigued about this. And I wanted to learn more about ENDS in the consumer lifecycle and why we don't design them. And I believe it's one of the critical things we need to improve on. So I'm going to talk to you about ENDS. Right. We're all going to die. I'm just going to put that out there. And historically, we were a lot more comfortable with that. We historically were com more comfortable with witnessing death, talking about death, and the idea of dying and being comfortable with that. We've distanced that over centuries. And we've also started to do that in our consumer experience over a similar sort of time period over centuries. And this removal and distancing of endings has sacrificed consumer involvement, belief, I guess, in some sort of sense. And we've distanced ourselves from responsibility in that. The consequences of that, I think, are climate change, mis-selling and financial services, and hideous things like revenge porn in digital. 
Now, I've done a couple of decades of doing digital product development. In, in fact, products, services, digital products. So I've been around a while. I've had a lot of conversations about design and uh, going into big companies, small companies, hundreds of products I've been involved with. And we'd all go through the same mechanism, the same team, the same conversations, and they'd be really exciting about the onboarding. How's the consumer going to discover this? How's the consumer going to use it? Let's test it. Let's make sure it works really well. Let's understand what they really want out of this thing. And then let's walk away from it. And you know who deals with that last lonely journey between usage and the end? It's the consumer. They are ridiculed. They are threatened, exposed, uninstructed. And that's down to us. We've built a culture around creation that isn't the right thing to do. But before you start blaming yourself, and I like blaming myself for all sorts of things, before you start doing that, let's blame history, because we can go way back in history and let's think about why it started a long, long time ago. So imagine yourself in the, let's say, the 14th century. You're in a dirty old field digging up turnips or something. It's cold, you feel rotten, you're impoverished. There's loads of disease around. You're pretty comfortable with this subject matter. Everyone around you dies. You're always talking about someone dying here, someone dying there. That's because you know there's another place and you desperately want to get there called heaven. Now, most religions have a component of heaven and they have the similar offering in heaven they're pretty much offering abundance, warmth, and nice people, generally, unless it's Valhalla, and we can come to that later. But Valhalla's different, anyway. And to get to heaven, because you desperately want to get to heaven, you have to go through explicit rule systems uh, and follow practices over your life, and one of which is how you die, sort of, your funeral, and making that a pretty good funeral, very special, etc., etc. But then... 1347, the plague arrived in Europe, decimated Europe. Within three years, it had killed a third of Europe's population. To give you an idea of how many people that is, there's an anecdote from a friar in France. He used to bury 28 to 30 people annually in his village in France. In the first September of the plague, he buried 680 people. So when your worldview is life, pretty grim, death, not so good. Heaven, yay. That all messes up when everyone starts dying in crazy amounts. Death then becomes meaningless. Now, the dominant, uh, the dominant religion at the time in Northern Europe was the Catholic religion. They were really mismanaging that sort of situation, let's say. They um, were doing things called indulgences, which were, there was a new product on the market, an indulgence. That was, it was signed by the Pope. It was for rich people to get you out of purgatory. And yeah, the rich still, you know, that hasn't changed much, has it? But also it's sort of, a, this new challenger religions came along. These are start-up religions. They're, they're more dynamic. They're looking future-facing. <laughs> and the Protestants, they start to have this different idea about how we should live our lives. There's three things, obviously they've done loads of stuff, but there's three things which I think are key to this issue. The first one is fasting. Now, Martin Luther, very early on, removed the idea of um, fasting out of the religious calendar in the Protestant, the Protestant religion very early on. 
so most religions have a period of fasting, organised dates, where everyone removes themselves from the abundance of life and will reflect and give thanks and appreciate how lucky they are. So we remove that from the Protestant calendar in, a, in Northern Europe. We also changed the relationship with jobs. So in the Catholic religion, there was three good jobs. Pope, a priest and a nun. All other jobs were rubbish. Those were the God-given God, uh, jobs. In the Protestant world, they decided that everyone, if you're doing a good job, thoughtfully, not hurting anyone, then that was a good job in the eyes of God. So if you think your education or LinkedIn has got anything to do with your career path, it's the Protestants. You should bring that up. Next job interview, talk about how the Protestants really helped you hundreds of years ago. <coughs> and the third thing is investment in the eyes of God, which was considered a bit dodgy at the time. And so this is a progressive group of people. They decided investment in the eyes of God is a good thing. So you invest in your business in the eyes of God and your business starts to do well and you put in more growth and invest more and you have that growth investment and growth investment. So these sort of things started to lay the groundwork for where we are today. A couple of hundred years later, we started to have an industrial revolution, which started this sort of consumer boom. Because up until then, consumers, the sort of consumption we were doing was the consuming on the kitchen table of the food and the waste from that would be given to the animals and the waste from the animals would go on the land and the abundance from the land would come back onto the kitchen table. And the consumer at the time could see that, they could action it, and they would look and observe it as it goes round in that circle. The Industrial Revolution changed that circle to a linear experience. And then we started to split it beginning to end. Initially, this was uh, things like basically factories making much better products. So we could do much more products, these sort of starting experiences at the beginning of the customer life cycle. We could also start to tell stories. We started to tell stories so we could fulfill the factories that needed to get loads more orders. And we'd tell people stories about how great this product was that they were going to use. We also started to attach people's identity to the consumption they were doing, initially through banking and debt, and then more recently we attach it emotionally through a like on Facebook or a follow on Twitter. And at the same time, we start to distance the relationship with the end. So this is, uh, you think like Jon Snow, you remember him, not the Game of Thrones guy, the germs guy, the guy who observed germs distributing in Soho in the sort of 17th, 18th century. You imagine telling somebody from that period about germs. So have you heard of germs? And they'd be like, no, what's a germ? I'll get inside you, kill you. Everyone's like, what? That blows their mind. <laughs> this sort of specialist person can only see germs. It's not for all the consumers to understand germs. But we've been telling this story again and again through centuries. Things like the atom bomb and radiation can only be seen by the specialist. And we tell ourselves the same story with climate change. It's by a specialist in the distance can see that. And the consumer hasn't got any relationship with it. And this splitting has split us in a sort of psychosis from me over here. Who loves buying stuff. I'm the consumer self. But in all of us, we've got also a civil self. So at the same time of me jumping on an aeroplane, dumping loads of carbon in the atmosphere, loving that sort of like buying ticket, get on the airport, buying loads of stuff, eating all of that, 
At the other end, I'm like, God damn, isn't it awful climate change? And that's the same person. I've got this psychosis around consumption. Let me put this into modern context with uh, printer ink cartridges. So um, I've got a printer, runs out of ink every five minutes. Um, so I go out and buy a new printer ink cartridge. I take the old one out and I put the new one in, turn it on, it goes jigger, jigger, jigger. And I'm like, I'm just holding the printer ink cartridge thinking, what should I do with that? It's really poisonous, can't chuck that in the bin. So I look on the back of the printer ink cartridge packaging, and there's two other marketing messages uh, or starting experiences. And I'm like, oh, really don't know what to do with this. So go online, articulate, find, find out this company's been doing a really good recycling reclaiming program for like 20 years. Don't know about it in the context of use in this. So then I fill in 2,500 words of T's and C's. I commit my uh, personal data of where I live. They then send me one of these envelopes. It takes two days to arrive. I put that in the envelope, and then I have to go to the post office. It takes another hour to go to the post office. Okay, it's another two days probably to get back to them. Probably five days, the whole cycle of boarding experience, it's hidden. I've had to do loads of work to find it. I've given personal de details. I've made legal commitments. That's the off-boarding experience that someone hasn't really thought through. But we're doing that everywhere. We do it in services, products, digital products, and that's sort of killing us. But why do emotional endings? Can, humans actually love stories. We love telling stories. We communicated people uh, stories for thousands of years. It was the primary way of educating people through different generations, long, long before we had books. And the endings of those stories are vital. Endings in narratives attempts to preserve the moral and social order which would be threatened by endlessly earing narratives. Now, I think of that in the 2008 missilling crisis and the amount of people who lost their homes and are now having endlessly earing narratives around where they live, their credit rating and stuff like that. This is uh, Richard Newport. He says, solid closure in conventional narratives and history satisfies individual and social desire for moral authority, a purposeful interpretation of life and genuine stability. Isn't that poetically close to what we're dealing with with climate change? Throughout history, we've been pretty good, actually, at giving reflection and giving thanks. All sorts of cultures have had a, a harvest festival. So whether you were the ancient Egyptians respecting the Min god, the harvest out of that, or you were eating moon buns in China, or you were in the, the UK and the last cart was decorated as it drifted into the village and the bells rang throughout the land to celebrate the bounty that everyone had committed to, they'd invested in for that whole year. It was a thankful, celebratory, giving thanks. We also done that with people moving to America and the first Thanksgiving. And they even invited the natives as a gesture of goodwill. We've certainly turned Thanksgiving into a massive consumer boom as well. But that's a little bit of a different story, although very much attached. But imagine the big things that you do that you have no thanks for. This is the biggest commitment all your life. Your mortgage every month. I'm going to pay the mortgage. I'm going to buy that massive house. And uh, right at the end of that, after 30, 25 years, 30 years, you get a nice letter from the bank that says, 
you've paid the debt off. A letter, a cold letter. Don't you think there should be a lot more around that? Thanks given, zero. But we also do it in credit cards as well. Encourage consumers to, you know, take on more debt, take on more debt. Do you ever get thanked for paying that debt down on a credit card? Very, very rarely. That's not, the, not, that's not where the game is. Gaming debt, teaching us all to borrow more money. Thanks given, none. But some companies have been doing much better. So this is uh, Mohamed uh, Yanis. He um, developed the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh like 20 years ago. I'm sure many of you have looked into it. You read the book, actually. It's uh, called Banker to the Poor. Oh, crying, laughing, crying. That's the, it was an emotional roller coaster like that, reading that book. It's incredible. But part of that, micropayments and lending to people in small groups, uh, individuals in those small groups, they would be all encouraging each other to pay back and they would be celebrating paying back, not borrowing more. And I'm sure many of you have heard of Marie Kondo. She's been doing the Netflix thing, which I think is a grotesque bastardization of her thing, really. It's, a, it's really a gluttony sort of looking at people's houses in a grotesque way. If you read the book, there's a lot more principle about giving thanks in that. So what Marie Kondo does, she is a declutterer from Japan. She goes into people's houses and she gets all the stuff out into categories. And then you have to pick up each one of the items and go, does it bring me joy? And if it doesn't bring you joy, then you put it into the pile to be disposed of. And you go to that pile to be disposed of and then you pick up things to be disposed of. And you say, thanks, comfortable shoes, for allowing me to walk up a mountain and see these amazing views. We say goodbye now, and then you put it into the appropriate mechanism. That sounds insane, doesn't it? Saying goodbye to things. We do that in the West. We think that's mental. But it's actually really important. Saying thank you to things will make you appreciate something a lot more. Now, some companies get into, get in, into grappling with endings by just making lifetime promises, and they're hysterical. So, has anyone heard of the uh, Domino's Forever campaign? It was run in Russia. Uh, I think this was last year. R Domino's Russia said to their followers on Facebook and other social media platforms in Russia, they said, if you get a tattoo on a prominent area of your body of the Domino's logo, uh, we're going to give you pizza for life. <laughs> and they're like, everyone's like, yeah, let's do it. And so... Everyone, it kicked off. People are getting tattoos everywhere. Then obviously something happened, because I reckon what happened is global Domino's Pizza rung up Russia Pizza and said, what the fuck are you up to? <laughs> like, that is not our brand. We are not about tattoos. They pulled the campaign within five days. What I, I think is genius about this is the flip, there's a company which is all about speed, disposability, fast food. You know, they really don't care about longevity. They have made promises forever to ask you to do something permanent, and then they've said, it's over in five days. Genius. <laughs> but they're not the only ones who do it. American Airlines in the 80s, they were running out of money. They thought, oh, let's get some crazy ideas now, like they probably got their marketing team together, and let's whip up some wacky ideas to make us some more money. So they decided, let's make this golden ticket, lifetime, endless uh, flights, golden ticket thing. Quarter of a million quid. Put it down, you can get 125 grand, you can get another one, a secondary one. This is in old 80s money. 
So anyways, there's this um, Wall Street broker guy and he's like adding up numbers properly in his head thinking like, I'm this, how old do I do these many flights? Actually, God, this is a really good deal. So he's all in. They sold 63 of these tickets. They actually had to pull one of them. It ended up being this guy's, but this guy went at it after he got a ticket. <laughs> 10,000 flights he'd done, 10 million miles. Individually, he cost the company $21 million. <laughs> it's the, the CEO of the company at the time said it's the single biggest deficit that company had in terms of an idea. <laughs> you really got to think through endings. This is another example, a bit more digital on brand, like for the, the, the um, audience, you know, we're all working in digital. So this company's come along and they said like, you know, I bet a lot of people want to put their digital stuff away forever, you know, like really secure it down. Cause it's not like, it's not like a drawer where somebody might come in and steal your digital stuff. Let's, let's do a thing. This is the forever guaranteed fund, pay them some money. They store up some digital assets for you forever. It's obviously target at baby boomers who don't know much about the <laughs> cloud service, maybe. But I like the idea that they've got this fund that allows you to um, move migrate from one platform to the other as the future sort of beautifully blossoms in front of us through things. This company is seven years old, and they're promising you lifetime plus 100 years. I don't think we're going to make it to 20, actually. I could probably guarantee, I could make a company which guarantees death in 20 years, and I reckon we beat them to it. And you couldn't do this without, like, uh, cybernetics, could you? The promise of being frozen and then reawoken, rebirthed into a future world where you are cured of your time-limiting life. Damn that time-limiting life. <laughs> Don't just imagine the world of the future. Personally experience space travel, virtual reality, and other incredible things to come, including the gangrene, because they couldn't quite unfreeze your leg. Probably. I don't know. That wasn't in the details. So I wrote a book like two years ago about ends. So I've been doing gigs like this and talking to people and trying to raise awareness of like how we should really start designing better endings and start becoming a lot more aware of them and starting to create complete life cycles so we can reclaim things, respect our environment, respect and reflect on the benefits that we get out of things. So more recently, I've been doing a lot of work around the business of that and getting more absolute about it and helping tools, develop tools and techniques around it. So like, I'm going to go into a few of those now for the, for the next book. So this is going to talk about the intent of what we're trying to achieve, some of the strategies around what we can change in businesses, the sequence of events, because if you start dealing with ends a lot more, then some of the sequences there uh, around the whole consumer life cycle change, and then a bit about consumer experience and... Uh, probably won't do tools today. Haven't got the time. We could waffle on for hours on this subject. Right, let's look at intent. What we're trying to do with ENDS is bring an opportunity to reflect, take responsibility, create actionable change to improve the ills of consumption by dealing with it inside the consumer life cycle, not as an exercise outside. But that's just sort of some flippant tagline, isn't it? And who hasn't made up one of those before? So I thought, I'd like, let's get it a bit more practical, because I think partly the big problem with this is business culture. A lot of our culture in business is a lot around like more growth, more sales, more growth, and not really about the long-term benefits. And also, as we're all consumer experience people, 
there's a bit about consumer experience in there. So let's look into the business culture of it. Businesses need to change to having these open conversations about endings. You'll be, I'm sure if you go back in the next couple of days or, or like on Monday and say, oh, it's a really interesting conversation about ends at the thing. I think we should design our own ends into the business, the product thing. You see how many people are going to go, what the hell are you on about? Shut up. And you'll be kicked out and then you'll be downgraded and they'll be like, comes up with crazy ideas about... Anyway, we have, need to have open conversations that are collaborative with a consumer for that, to bring these endings into place. So actively control and conclude the end of life, because a lot of our experiences linger way too long in the product or service experience, right? Let's go into those in more detail. This is Reid Hoffman. He started LinkedIn. He's got some different ideas about, um, about how we should uh, work, but also he talks about endings in the role or, or your job. He says, acknowledging that employees might leave is how you build the relationship that convinces great people to say. And that's very much around like what that consumer experience should be. We're going to start discussing that with a consumer and not denying them the ability to talk about endings. And it also about inspiring collaborative effort. So uh, a load of our devices, like my phone and this laptop, a couple of generations ago, I could upgrade my laptop, like put a new battery in it, new, but not anymore. They're full up with glue. Who's going to get in that? I can't even look at any of the... My eyes are so bad, I can't look at the tiny screw on the, on, the, on the phone. I can't even change the screen on it when it cracks anymore. Totally impenetrable to the consumer. But Fairphone have changed that model. They, they've, uh, they're offering up a phone which... Um, you can upgrade the camera. You can upgrade... They're inviting you in. They're doing this collaboratively with you, extending the lifespan of that product. And then also we've got to start to actively conclude the end of life, not let things linger on forever. You know what happens when you get a new phone? You get your old phone, you've got your new phone, you're like, cool, I love my new phone. You get your old phone, you're like, oh, what shall I do with that? And then you open up the drawer of your desk and you bung it in there with the other five generations of mobile phones you don't know what to do with. Patagonia of actively gone out and they're starting to talk to people about end of life of those products right there and then with that consumer. They're either upgrading or improving or taking back those products. Okay, let's think about business strategy. Well, our, our businesses are in this sort of uh, mindset of a single engagement. And it comes from like going out manually selling to people like a good few decades ago. So what businesses like to think is like there's a consumer over there, they're going to become my customer in one single permanent relationship forever. That's not how things work, because ends happen. I say, I'm married, that ends in two ways, death or divorce. There's no way out of that other than those two things. So if you think like ends don't happen to your business, you're insane. Because ends do, they slam in and they smash your consumer experience to smithereens at the offboarding. And what happens is you get shards of broken experiences littering the digital, physical and service ecosystem. And that's the type of things which is waste plastic in the sea, revenge porn and lost pensions. We need to move to multiple engagement models which says there's a consumer over there, they're going to become my customer until they might choose to leave of their own free will. And I've designed this nice off-boarding experience that helps them like collaboratively through a conversational relationship, honestly with me, the, the provider, and we gain back control and they are free to go and look into other places. 
But of course, when you go to work, somebody's going to mention the word retention. And they're going to say, yeah, but we need to do some retention to stop people leaving. You can't leave. No way. That's what consumers get told. You see, there's two reasons consumers leave. Either the product doesn't fit their needs or external factors. Is the answer to either of those questions, stop them leaving? It's not, is it? There's two answers to that. It's either improve the product or empathy. This is what happens when retention goes on. Consumer buys product. Consumer likes product. Consumer decides, like, there's a new product somewhere else I might want to go for, or external factors. And then you can't leave retention sign comes in, talks them out of it. They then say, oh, I'm staying. And then they're in a post-retention regret world. <coughs> See, if you don't do multiple engagement models, you're going to erode your brand equity. How many of you have had like really bad endings and even signed up again under duress and then hated that company and told everyone how horrible they are? That happens all the time. <laughs> We've got to move to a multiple engagement model and you've got to start strategically looking at brand equity over decades and multiple engagements where the consumer might not be with you for that long. A designed end. There's some quirks as well with ends, which are pretty weird. So um, this is Kaya Cars. They brought out a uh, warranty called the seven-year warranty about 10 years ago. Most products were based on um, product quality materials warranties, and that was like two years. Do you remember those Volkswagen ads, which was like when people would sort of moronically shut a car door and go, that sounds like a Volkswagen. Do you remember that? I mean, who, who were we like 20 years ago? Did we not read any books or something? Anyway, Sakaya so Cars comes along and they say seven-year warranty. And everyone, like the whole market's like, what? Seven-year warranty? That's crazy. The interesting thing about seven years, though, is like humans find it hard to think beyond five years. So you get those job interview questions or financial services questions where they'll be like, what have you been doing uh, in five years' time? And you're like, oh, maybe at this job still, or millionaire or something. But when you, when you're, uh, when you go beyond five years, it, stums, it becomes this like, very difficult thing to imagine, harder and harder. It's like a void, a darkness, like death, like product death. And Kaya Cars are saying, just over that horizon of product death world, there's a funeral and we've already got you in the diary, and you're going to come back, and we'll sort you out with another car. Since they introduced the seven-year warranty, their market shares double from 3.1 to 3.5. Their consumers believe the seven-year warranty is above every other aspect of the car purchase. And their consumers are super loyal. And then Snapchat. I mean, years ago, I was thinking, like, uh, shall I go with Snapchat or Facebook? You know, you're sort of thinking that through. I thought Snapchats for intimate couples to send things to one another. I was like, my relationship not in that guise anymore. And so I thought I'd go with Facebook. You know, it's a much safer option. They're probably going to fuck up the world's democracy in the future, but hey, hey there. <laughs> so I thought like, well, let's go, with, uh, let's go with Facebook. But Snapchat 
delete is our default. Can you imagine any company 10, 20 years ago saying like delete is our default? That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? 35% of Snapchat users love it because it deletes stuff. Insane. It also raises consumer satisfaction. Gyms have a terrible turnover rate. Their churn rate's outrageous. So people, what tends to happen with gyms is like you have Christmas and then you like, you put on a load of kilos and then... Uh, and you think, oh, I've got to go to the gym. So you sign up in January and you're like, uh, yeah, I'm going to the gym. And you're like really into the gym. And then, well, at least in Northern Europe, it starts to get lighter. And then you're sort of like, come March, someone goes, do you want to come out for a beer tonight? And you'll go, yeah, I'll come out of the beer. I won't go to the gym tonight. And then, you know, March turns to April, June. But June, you're like out every night. No more gym for you. You're like piling on the pounds because it's summer now and you're drinking lagers in the park or something. And then... And then you're thinking, oh, I'm wasting loads of money at the gym, so I'm going uh, to unsign up for the gym. And then you go to the gym and go, oh, I want to cancel my um, commitment to the gym and cancel the contract. And they go, like, no, have you seen the contract? You can't cancel it. And you're like, oh, can't I? And then you go off and you go, oh, I'm going to go to the doctors. Because a friend said, like, oh, I, I got out of the gym because I said I had an achy knee. So I got a note from the doctor and I go back to the gym and go, I've got an achy knee and here's a note from the doctor. And they say, no, have you seen the clause in X, Y, and Z? And they're like oh, you can't leave the gym, can you? No, I've got to pay a load of money to leave the gym or not leave the gym at all. That's the gym market. <laughs> TV market, similar. They go, like, you've got, you got to stay with us. In, in fact, Sky, up until recently, they used to have a, you can only leave by enduring, enduring a one-hour sales interview with a professional salesperson. And then after that, if you've... If you've gone through that challenge, consumer, with your shield held high, you battled with the best salesperson we have, then you can leave. I actually came up to me a, uh, like a couple of months ago, and we, they said, like, oh, we got rid of that like six weeks ago. Six weeks ago? That's 2019, isn't it? Anyway, these, both these markets have been totally disrupted by endings. So the gym, the gym industry, the top of the gym industry, we have things like spas and bits of cucumber on your eyes and uh, like personal trainers. That's still intact. And then the whole of the middle's fallen away. And then there's these super quick come and go as you please gyms with no contract, really light, quick, come and go as you please. That's great endings, comfortable, quick endings. Netflix does the same. They're proud of their come and go, no hassle, online cancellation. The consumer satisfaction of Netflix is 78% traditional pay TV, which is essentially what we experience. I'm just watching TV, for goodness sakes. I don't care if it comes through a cable or whatever. Gone down 11 years consistently. Time after time, it's now at 62%. No consumer satisfaction, because you can't get out of those contracts. I'll give you a quick example on... Uh, <coughs> You know, who doesn't do an example about Apple? Let's do Apple's example. Like, life is easier on the iPhone, but death isn't. The end of an iPhone isn't easy. Yes, you know, we have like these, uh, you know, these onboarding experiences, which are actually incredibly well polished. And we've probably all done one, haven't we? We've all done one of these. We've either done it for a printer or a phone or whatever. But these are really complicated things. To pull all that stuff together and make it into a great consumer experience, it's a complicated thing. And once you've done that, you're into this stable, comfortable usage within like minutes, really. It's brilliant. But that doesn't happen at the end. That usage to the end is that lonely journey of every consumer anymore. So 
Apple does do endings, they think, but basically that's these type of endings. These are after the event. So this one, Take Back, that was uh, my son's, in fact, this, this laptop on the left has been in our family. It's a loyal member of our family for 12 years. My wife had it, she worked on it, and then she gave it to our kids. And as it started to degrade in the battery, swollen, almost looks like it's going to blow up in your son's face as he goes on roadblocks for the other 20th hour of the weekend, you start to think, oh, I probably should take that back. And uh, so we went back to Apple, you know, son in hand, his laptop in his hand, obviously about to blow up, and uh, say like, oh yeah, we're bringing this back. I think you should probably dismantle it under safe sort of procedure. Blokes going like, yeah, I'll get a form. I'm like, what, a form? Am I in the 18th century? <laughs> There's no way I want a form at this point. Isn't there some sort of off-boarding marketing thing where the, you say to my son, like, is, didn't you have a great time with this Apple product? Here's a voucher for you to start getting addicted to Apple products. That didn't happen. That was the end. They don't care. They also do a buyback scheme, but that's the end of the product experience. I've off-boarded emotionally by that point anyway. And do you think I really care how many robots take apart Apple products? I don't care about that either. They might have 2,000, 200, they might have 200 million for all I care. I've left emotionally as a consumer. <clears throat> but they do know a lot about the degrading of that product as you have that experience. So they've got, uh, they've brought out this um, physical performance thing recently. That was a, a patent from last year. They know hairline cracks in your product, in your screen, which you can't even see. That was a patent filed last year by Apple. They also know the capability of the software you're on and the battery life and some of the other features that you're probably not using anymore. There's loads of bits of information and data on your device that could be assembled. And at the moment, they're just distributed and no one's pulling them together in any meaningful experience, any meaningful off-boarding experience. So corralling this sort of type of information into a meaningful bit of information that we can engage with in a collaborative sense between me, a user, and Apple, that'd be great. And they'd get a lot more engagement. So you could imagine a scenario where amongst the fitness apps is the fitness of my iPhone as well. So I could understand like the performance of my device as it starts to lower in quality. And then I can make predictions about when to upgrade. And then we've got a conversation about what's happening and reclaiming and not giving me a form at the end of my experience. <clears throat> also, Enzing's obviously gonna change the sequence of events as a consumer goes through that type of thing. So uh, there's roughly about seven different consumer endings. So you can map them over services, products, digital. And, uh, and as you do, so you can imagine a timeout. In terms of services, you go two weeks, holiday. After two weeks, that's ended, doesn't it? Simple products. There's a warranty period. But also, you have sell-by dates in products. So there's an ending in that. And in digital, sort of one-year software subscription. And in things like credit out, you get battery empty in physical products. Gems in Clash of Clans. And task event completion, you can imagine somebody turning up at your house to fix the boiler, the event's completed. Broken and withdrawal, things break, don't they? But we've experienced a lot of broken withdrawal endings when we've signed up to startup apps, where they go, 
Oh, that's a cool feature, isn't it? I love that. Commit, commit, download, yeah, engage, make friends in app. Oh, they're doing really well. Wait a minute, they've sold out. Yahoo's bought them. Oh, they collapsed the app, so I'll see you later. That's a broken withdrawal thing. We also end up having lingering relationships with products. That's your phones in drawers type lingering things. It might be in your house, but you don't ever use it anymore. It's out of date, you know, it's lingering around. You haven't concluded that relationship. And there's also aspects of proximity in our ending. So for example, in services in proximity, I was in the UK, I could get the service of the BBC. And what a proud service it is. But then I moved to Sweden, so I had to go on VPN. I was really out of proximity, unless I became illegal. So there's a proximity issue. But when you move from Apple to Android, you move proximities as well. You move out of the jurisdiction of that thing. And then there's obviously trend type of things. So let me give you an example of how to analyze that in terms of some of your products and stuff with freemium, which I think is a really messed up thing anyway. So freemium models come in often three flavors. You've got a timeout freemium, which is after three months you, of usage, then that's the end of your freemium experience. You get credit out, which may be five events, and that's the end of your freemium experience. Or sometimes you get a proximity, which will give you only a certain feature set, and outside of that, then you can sign up and get the full bountiful feature set. But what's funny about how polished the endings are in freemium models and how clear they are, the same companies that do really good freemium do really bad endings when actually they've got endings down in some of these aspects. So what I suggest they should do in freemium is make them more disruptive and actually make the people who pay for the real service make a much better ending there, be way better. A lot of people ask me about like, how can we get this into projects and I think it's a really valid question because you're going to go back and no one's going to listen to you about endings to, uh, on Monday. So you're going to have to do sneaky things like, uh, what about this? Or you're going to have to engage in a long philosophical debate about the meaningfulness of endings and then you'll have to go back to the Protestants to really justify it. <laughs> Which I'm sure you don't want to do and no one's got time in their projects. So I suggested something like this. Five by five. So you imagine 5% of your project time, which when you're planning for a project, no really, really cares about anything under 10% of your project time. So you can like go, just a 5% of our project time. And then you say like, if you're working in digital, for five years out. And because no one can think five years out, and that's the death-like void beginning, then you go like, 5% of our project time, no one cares about. Death-like void, no one cares about. But you'll have to deal with endings, because nothing in your, probably your product portfolio last five years if you're building digital. So let's come down to the consumer experience because that's what we're all sitting here waiting for doing. Right, there's loads of endings in the consumer experience. I'm not possibly going to go through all of them, especially last thing on a Friday and you all want to get to the pub and I haven't drunk in like hours. So I'm keen too. But I just want to get into the, the nuts and bolts of developing a consumer experience which I believe needs to have these characteristics. When we build consumer experiences for endings, we need to make them consciously connected. So they're beginning to end, they're consciously connected. They have emotional triggers, the same sort of stuff that you have in advertising and marketing that tells a story to us. They need to be actionable so the consumer can get involved and they need to have it be done in a timely manner. I'll give you some examples. Oh, I love drinking really cool, cold, sugary, watery drinks, Coca-Cola or something like that. 
over here, like I'm like that, go, oh, that's so good. And I feel like, I feel like the dream, you know? And then over here, I'm like, God, look at all that plastic in the sea. And without connecting these two, because at the moment what we're doing is ha we're, we're talking about great stuff inside the consumer experience, and we talk about plastic outside the consumer experience. I never go, I never go, I, I'm just popping down the road to get some plastic. It might have, it might have be wrapped in some stuff and there might be some sugary water in it, I don't know. And then nobody ever does that in a consumer experience. So we've got to get out of this habit of talking about material waste at the offboarding. We need to attach these inside the consumer experience, not outside. IKEA are starting to do that because they've realized they filled up their whole, our whole houses with IKEA stuff. And unless they start taking that away, they can't sell us any more stuff. So they're going to start like going there like, well, we recycle it, but we're not taking it away. And now they're like, we've got to take it away. Have you seen their house? It's like Marie Kondo's going to have to go there. And uh, so they're going to have to start taking stuff away as well. So it moves it from making the end consciously connect it, moves it from someone else's issue to being you being accountable for that and making you connected to those two things, if we keep inside the consumer experience. Is it emotional? So I remember when I was a kid, like uh, the first pack of cigarettes on his, like 1972 that was, made, that was the year I was born. I remember watching my dad smoke, so cool. Drinking, smoking, top off. He had a pretty good body because they were all starved in the 70s. All they'd done was drink. <laughs> and smoke, obviously. So he's smoking, drinking, and it's looking, oh, God, Dad, I want to be like you, smoking and drinking. And uh, so, you know, and you look at the packs, and they were beautiful, like really nicely foiled and stuff like that, real bits of craft, and uh, you thought, they're cool. Tiny little text that only a child could really read. Don't smoke, it's not good for you, he said. And then, and then, like, a few years later, somebody said, you know, there's a load of people dying of smoking. We really should do something about it. So what we're going to do is put in capital letters on black and white. That'll stop it. Stop it in their tracks, they probably thought. Like, definitely. Yeah, that didn't work either. So we're going to bring emotion into it, and we're going to put some really fucked-up imagery on the packs. <laughs> and everyone's going to go, oh, my God, look at that. I didn't know that could, I could do that with... I'm going to stop smoking immediately. I've seen that really horrible eye. And that sort of started to build. We're starting to sell emotion into the off-boarding experience. And now we're starting with plain packaging, which is coming in around to a lot of countries. We're stopping doing anything of the onboarding experience in the, in the uh, packaging and things. And it's enwrapped with the ultimate conclusion of where you might end up if you smoke. So it takes it from this indifference about anything, that emotion takes it to being engaged. Is it actionable? So does anyone know what this symbol means? Don't throw it in the bin. Can you do don't? Anyone here do don't? Do you ever go out? I'm going to just go out and do don't. You can't go around doing don't all the time, Joe. You really can't, can you? Because it's not actionable, don't. So consumer's not going to go, don't throw it in the bin. That means like, so what do I do with it? It's unactionable, isn't it? Symbols tend to fall into this category. Do, do you know, so I've asked this actually at every conference I do for the last like, couple of years since I've been doing this thing. So probably like five to 7,000 people. I've met 15 people who accurately know what this symbol means. It's the we directive symbol. Anyone, anyone? There you go. 
That's 16. <laughs> well done. Maybe you, you know. Anyway, so this is the um, European Directive for Consumer Electronics. They need to be recaptured. So any reseller, um, manufacturer, or importer needs to offer up to the consumer an opportunity for anyone to bring back consumer electronics. So I can bring this back, I can bring that back into the, into the uh, manufacturing ecosystem, which means I try this out. I get a 10-year-old Epson printer, I take it into PC World in the UK, in Canterbury, which is like a small city there. I go up to the desk and I'm thinking I'm going to get kicked out. And I say, like, here's a, I'm bringing this back under the Wii Directive. And the bloke's like, yeah, cool. And he picks it up and puts it on the shelf with a load of other stuff. I'm like, what? This is like a life hack. <laughs> I, I filled my house up with old shit that I've never got rid of. How do I get rid of that electronics? So it has to be actionable, and you can't go around doing don't. Because if we have things that are actionable, we can take them from circle of concern. Somebody can take action with it to circle of influence. Is it timely? So there's a girl called Emma. She, is, she had a terrible... Um, cancer in the UK and she was um, she had to go to the US to get some special treatment and while she was in the US she was in the children's ward and she was lying there and there'd be these kids getting up and ringing a bell at the end of the of the ward and she inquired to what they were doing and they were saying that this is uh, once the kids have had a treatment or finished their treatment they can get up and ring the bell and Emma thought this was a great idea and she came back to the UK, and she, um, she gave the idea to the doctors and nurses at her local hospital, and they started, uh, they put a, a bell in for the end of treatment. The trouble with a lot of health treatments is, and not just for children, but there's no conclusion to it. You drift through this sort of post-treatment world where you don't really bring an end or a conclusion or reflection or closure to it. So, if you want to have a little cry at work sometime, you should go on to here, this Facebook thing. So many kids getting up, ringing this bell, and it's such an incredible experience to see them having this really emotional ending that brings an incredible, powerful event to the end of their treatment. Thanks very much. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. And so we reach the end of our 2019 UX Australia conference. I want to say thank you to Joe and to Kate and to Liz and Aral um, for their wonderful uh, keynotes over the last two days. I wanted to thank all of the presenters who put their hand up and submitted a talk um, and went through the, the, the effort and the exercise, um, both mental and emotional, of coming up here on stage and delivering a talk. Um, I want to thank you all for coming. Um, over these last few days to not only uh, listen and, and talk, but also to meet other practitioners, um, to have those conversations out in the, uh, the foyer, um, over drinks, over dinner, over coffee, 
Um, it's a big part of the conference experience for so many people um, is the people. It, it is the, the, the folks that we get to connect with, that we get to talk to, um, make contacts that persist. I know uh, one of the, the great joys about this conference for me is that I, um, it's a, a solid point in the year where I know I'm going to get to see a lot of people that I otherwise don't get to see. Um, and I also get to meet an awful lot of people uh, who I might otherwise not get to meet. I want to quickly thank our sponsors once again. Um, they are wonderful. Um, a call out in particular to the folks at Blue Egg for those, um, those really great water bottles. Um, they've been good. We've, we've had issues in the past where we didn't have anywhere to get water. Um, or like a reusable thing to actually uh, drink out of. Um, you know, lots of plastic bottles instead uh, littered around the place. Uh, so it's good that they've supplied those and it's good that we've been able to put in place water fountains instead, um, just as something that we do um, as part of the conference experience. Um, one thing I, I would like to... I would like to just sort of pick up on the conference has touched on a few themes that I'm hoping were thought-provoking. I'm sure for many of you were challenged, challenging in many ways. They speak to some of the issues that we need to deal with as a practice. Um, what they didn't necessarily talk about are some of the issues that we need to deal with as a society. Um, and so one of the things that I, I just want to remind us all about is that we have an enormous capacity for collective action. There are 600 odd people in this room. Um, every one of you has the ability individually to make a change, but collectively we have an opportunity to have an enormous impact. We can answer some of those questions and address some of those challenges in how we go about doing those things. But I hope if anything, over these last few days, you've started to think about what it is you're designing, who it is that you're designing for, as well as how it is you're going about doing your design. Those are big questions that we need to ask ourselves. They should be questions that are relatively present all the time. But it's certainly something that, at least on an annual basis, we should take an opportunity to just pause and reflect and, and think about. It won't come as a surprise uh, to anyone who knows me in the least. Um, I'm deeply concerned about the direction that we are heading as a society. We seem to be accelerating, not addressing issues around our climate and our environment, the way in which we engage with nature, the way in which we use our natural resources. We seem almost to be maliciously destructive of our natural world in some cases. Um, you, you will almost certainly have seen uh, video footage of the Amazon 
um, fires that have been going on, and that's deliberate. Those fires have been deliberately lit. It's not an accident. It's not a, an unfortunate outcome. It's a deliberate policy to clear rainforest for commercial gain. And we sit here in Australia and it's quite easy to sort of look at Brazil and say, you know, like, you really need to do something about that. But Australia has the fourth highest rate of land clearing in the world. We have some of the most pristine natural environments in the world and we are just as bad. Per capita, we're worse. So we can look at those issues that are happening just in that one example, but there's a lot that we can be doing here. That's our climate. We have issues around wealth inequality and income inequality in Australia, which are only getting worse. And we're putting in place more systems that institutionalise that inequality and reinforce those systemic uh, feedback loops so that they're going to get worse over time unless we do something about them. And that's the point that I'd like to remind you of. Those systems, those institutions, those systems of systemic inequality were designed to work that way. They're doing exactly what they were designed to do. And the good news there is that we can design them to work differently. We can design them to remove and reduce wealth and income inequality. We can design them to improve people's access to healthcare. We can design them to improve people's access to education. We can design our product life cycles and our systems and our services so that we reduce our impact on our natural environment. It won't be easy. We are talking with someone earlier today. Those existing power structures are heavily invested in what we have in our society today. They won't be easy to change. But I come back to that notion of our collective impact. As a society, collectively, we do have the power to make a difference. There are a lot more of us than there are of them. And whilst they do have the money, we need to have the will. And if we do that, then we really can reset those systems and we really can change the trajectory of those things so that we do start to improve our relationship with the natural world and we do start to repair those social injustices and we do start to reduce those inequalities. We have that opportunity. We really do have that opportunity. So whilst you, you may have heard some things over these last few days, uh, someone used the phrase this morning, who thought this conference was going to be about existential dread? Um, and I, I, I get that. And it's a, it's a good, uncomfortable state to be in sometimes because that can force us into action. If we're feeling comfortable, we're less likely to act. So I'm okay with people feeling uncomfortable because we're more likely to act as a result. We do have that opportunity. We do have the skills. We need to collectively have the will and take action. So, I want to thank you all. Thanks.